To the Standardized Patients Podcast. I am your host and Capricorn, Katie Culligan. In this podcast, we dive into the who, what, why, and huh of this quirky industry that no one's ever heard of. Now, what's a standardized patient, you may ask? Well, a standardized patient is a... Standardized patient is an individual who is trained to be a very specific and repeatable patient for some kind of healthcare education program. A simulated patient might have kind of a sketch of themselves, but they're also doing a ton of improv and maybe even drawing from their own medical history, such as they're comfortable. And the learning part is, you know, has come to kind of outweigh the assessment part of standardized patient work, just generally, not just nationally, but internationally, that learning experiences are now the predominant kind of budget item rather than the strict testing that we might remember with, you know, checklists and ah, monitors and all that. That's still very much part of it, but that's standardized, but simulated is more of a, a little more air to it. That voice that you just heard is Mary Donovan. A little bit about our guest today, Mary Donovan. Mary is the Assistant Dean for Standardized Patients and Experiential Learning, providing SOM students with clinical learning and assessment opportunities through the methodologies of SP Education and Simulation. Prior to Georgetown, she served as the Faculty Instructor and Senior SP Trainer at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences and Academic Affairs staff at Johns Hopkins Medical School. Prior to her work in med-ed experiential learning, she managed a forum of women in international trade and diplomacy, taught as adjunct faculty on Georgetown's main campus in the mid-90s, served as marketing manager for B2B organization, and as chapter liaison for a national trade association. In the early days of online journal search and retrieval, she worked as a researcher at the National Library of Medicine, Library of Congress, and other libraries. While in college and beyond, she worked for the UVA hospital education system, teaching children from birth to age 21. Welcome, Mary Donovan. Wow, thank you. That was a lot, and I appreciate your breath. <laughs> your breath control. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've worked hard on that, but I know I love reading all of this about you. That was just the beginning of it. We have so much more that we could even talk about, but you gave us a lot to talk about just from there. I'm so glad to have you on today. I'm so excited to talk to you because you have had quite a journey in standardized patient and simulated patient work. Being an SP and other educational aspects of that world to becoming assistant dean for standardized patients and experiential learning. So I just think it's so cool to talk to you and find out about that side of things. So far in this podcast, we've talked to a lot of standardized patients. We've talked to a few standardized patient trainers, but this is the first time we get to talk to uh, somebody even higher up that sees all of that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what is the definition of dean or assistant dean for standardized patients? There are levels of deanery. Um, <laughs> you know, assistant dean is kind of the entry level, and then there are associate deans, and then senior associate deans, and then there's typically a one big dean. The designation, I guess, is just more of a recognition of how this is an integral part of medical education. And it's the, the term experiential learning actually goes well beyond SPs and SIM. Um, it's part of 
the undergrad college in terms of providing internships and experiences for career preparation. So most colleges have experiential learning in more than one way even. But I really owe that to um, my senior associate dean who kind of went went to the mat for me um, with the, the medical center and proposed that I, I joined that kind of first tier of it. And it was really through her, through Dr. Furlong, thank you. Oh, that's incredible. So was this something that when you started out your your career that you hoped and or expected? Absolutely not. I, <laughs> I cannot tell you what a surprise e- even the past 22 or three years have been. I, I didn't, well, when I got out of college, this job did not exist. Mm. And being an SP was so rare and kind of unheard of um, at that time in the 80s. Mm. And slowly it became, it built as a way for um international medical grads to demonstrate that they could practice in the United States. So that's when SPs started kind of taking off in the Uh 90s. And it became part of their testing, their licensing to be able to practice in the U.S. And then the testers started thinking, gee, maybe it's not a bad idea for our own graduates to go through this and demonstrate the same kinds of things. Mm. So I got into it through, really, it was an acting uh, hotline notice that a school in Baltimore was looking for people to portray end-of-life scenario family members. Mm. So standardized family or really simulated family in that case, as it as the definitions have evolved. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I just thought this is so cool to be able to bring in, you know, taking on a persona, just the joy of, of you know, acting it all, mm-hmm. but also you know, the, the medical world and creating future doctors. I'd worked in with children at, in college mm-hmm. and it was kind of circling back around to that keen interest and then realizing that as as you might become a trainer, educator, I would pull in the classroom experience that I had. And so here was this job, are you kidding me? That <laughs> kind of pulled together all these different interests that I had. But in my wildest dreams, I, I didn't imagine. I mean, I'm not an MD, I'm not a PhD, and I just sort of had it in my head that you kind of had to to be a dean of any kind. I didn't really understand how any of that worked. Um, So the fact that that's happened for me is just really very, very nice and very rewarding, but also really surprising. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Thanks for taking me through that. And I have to say, well-deserved. I am grateful that I have known you since I want to say 2008. I started working with you. I was actually working at Bush Gardens at the time when I got involved with with you guys and I knew I was moving back to the DMV area afterwards. So I actually drove up from Williamsburg to do a training. And then I think I drove a separate time to do the event from that training. Cause I was like, I really want to work with these people. I want to work with this school. And since then I'm glad I did because I've had such a wonderful experience working with you all and, and for you all during all of these years later. So you were, I think my, very second standardized patient or simulated patient experience. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize I didn't realize your commute is <laughs> to come and do. Wow. I didn't tell you all that was on purpose. I didn't want you to be like, oh, she's driving too far. Cause I knew I would be up there soon enough in a more permanent mm-hmm. basis. And on those days off, and we performed on the weekends in the fall. 
of mm. that year. It was like a Halloween type thing. So I had the weekdays available. So I was just getting ready to, Perfect. And my parents were in town and it, it all worked out. So yeah. And it, so it's interesting to see that you were the administrative director and educator for the Integrated Learning Center since 2007. So where did you, where were you right before 2007? So I came from USIS, from Silver Spring. So they were the first SP center in the DC area. Really? So they, it was interesting in those days as an SP in Baltimore, there was only one school that could record and had, you know, they took over an actual clinic. So they had one door, you know, they didn't have speakers. So somebody would walk along and knock five minutes, five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, it was, you know, Kathy Siobhan told us where she had been in California, which she's now gone back to. Somebody would walk down the hallway with a cowbell. So then that was five minutes. They had told the students, when you hear the cowbell, that's five (laughs) minutes remaining. And you're out of there. And then they just come pull them out of the room because there was only one door. Oh, my goodness. So all the schools from D.C. would go to to Baltimore for their sort of, you know, it was typically end of third year. Are they clinically ready? Mm -hmm. Um, Even before the national licensing step for a standardized patient exam came in, they still wanted to see just how does our class do? It's still really important to make sure that, you know, three years of what we think we've taught them shows up in what they've absorbed and can actually put into practice. So three of the DC schools would send their students two weeks at a time to Baltimore. And I worked as an SP for the DC schools in Baltimore. Now I have to ask, so how many... SPs that you worked with at that time are still doing SP work? Some, you know, (laughs) but not a ton. But gosh, you know, and I'm thinking of those projects. Some of them are still, you'll you'll see in our GF1. Yeah, maybe, maybe half a dozen. Okay, that's pretty good. And was this in the 80s? So this was the 90s. This was late 90s, early 2000s. USIS, they actually opened in the fall of 99. I I came in and met with Dr. Hawkins, who preceded um, Dr. Lopiato. And he was the first medical director and said, you know, we're going to do a shipboard exercise on the USS Comfort in the harbor. And so that was their first project. And I was the first case that they were writing. And like, they didn't even have a name for the case. And they're like, oh, we we just thought you use your real name. And I'm like, I think I'd rather not use my real name for everything here. (laughs) Um, So I got to pick the name of the first case that they did too. (laughs) Really interesting adventure. And that was kind of their entree with a Navy and military, all the the uniformed service folks and public health service that go to med school there. You know, every med school has kind of an ethos or a reason for being created, and it's different. And so there are accrediting standards, but, you know, the focus of the curriculum can vary quite a bit. And it's interesting to see that. It was interesting. So I worked for them until 2007 when I jumped over downtown. Oh, very cool. That is so interesting. So because you've had such a wide experience, what would you say besides the cowbell, which we are knocking on the door and saying five minutes? What are some big differences you've seen as standardized simulated patient work has developed over the years and progressed? Yeah, wow. You know, it's been so interesting. And at the very first ASPE meeting, which I think it was 2002 in Virginia Beach, uh, just separated from what was called the Ottawa Conference, which is an every other year international conference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of fledgling 
Standardized Patient Educators Association met. And, and we were like dancing on the beach in our bare feet and, you know, presenting whatever we were doing. It was just all sort of figuring it out. And there wasn't even a step to CS yet. So this obligation to be very strict with a checklist and all those things really hadn't, you know, caught on as much as just the teaching opportunities. So I, I went from well, and then in 2004, this licensing step became mandatory for U.S. graduates of medical schools. And it has since gone away again <laughs> during the pandemic. Yes. And can you actually explain what a step process is for somebody who doesn't understand what that is? Sure, I'll try. So the United States licensing the medical examiners, U.S. MLE, and the National Board of Medical Examiners. Um, they work very closely in Philadelphia. And they set a series of steps. So becoming a doctor takes a really long time. And they have two steps before they can even graduate from medical school. They have a step three when they're residents. And then there are you know, the colleges of specialties, there are all kinds of certifications. There are research every other year or every so many years, each specialty has to go get tested again. So it really never ends. But the big kind of powerful cognitive load bearing ones are step one, which is usually before they start their clinical rotations. Most schools require that. And that's a multiple choice question test. So you don't have to be near Philadelphia or any of these other places. You go to something like a Kaplan testing center. They split step two into two. So one was clinical knowledge, still a computer-based kind of multiple choice question. But the clinical skills part was a standardized patient, you know, only five testing centers in the whole country. And every medical student to practice for most schools, even to graduate, would have to pass this national licensing step with standardized patients in much the way that we would have experienced a, a high stakes clinical capstone kind of okay. exam. So they're in charge of making sure that the doctors are at a level of competency to, to kind of move forward mm -hmm. at the MD after their name. And then as residents that they're able to move forward and kind of practice independently, hang out a shingle. They're the patient safety people ultimately to try to find the way to measure people that shouldn't yet become doctors. They're not quite ready. Mm -hmm. So it's meant to kind of weed out students who just need some more work before they're they're ready to be practicing in the U.S. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and then they just sort of took away the clinical skills part as we were all shutting down in March of 2020. They thought it would be telehealth at first. Mm -hmm. It was just too big a conversion to do very quickly. And they were like, you know what? I think we're just going to have to work in those kind of hands-on and face-to-face -face clinical communication skills through other means. And we're still not exactly clear what those other means are. Mm -hmm. um, but they said they were planning to build more of the kind of case-based thought processes and clinical reasoning into step one and three, or even two CK. So we'll see. They've told us they don't plan to bring it back. Okay. The licensing boards are ultimately for anybody who's ever been a patient, the thing that tells them this person's competent, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. take care of me, competent enough. Not that we're not all human and make mistakes, but has, has met kind of the bar to to move forward and, and take care of me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really, really helpful. And it, cause it's, it can be very complex how that all works <laughs> as we it all know. It really so is. I, I've, I, I've probably scratched an iceberg. Is that 
<laughs> Block that metaphor. Um, so I also want to follow up on your definitions of standardized patient versus simulated patient. So those were great definitions. And I want to ask a little bit more about when it first started, was it always considered standardized patient work and then turned into more simulated or was the terminology reversed? The terminology existed, I think, at the time that I started, but typically the word standardized would be covering what was really one or the other or some hybrid. You know, mm-hmm. there are, you know, clinical exams, OSCEs that might have a checklist of sorts, but students' performance is not going to make or break them moving on. The SP might have a conversation on the patient perspective of communication skills, and that's fine too, even though faculty will be grading the competencies from this bit of scoring they have. Mm-hmm. So the, the work that I did first as an end-of-life family member, that was really simulated, actually, I would say, in today's terminology. Um, but we were called a standardized family. It was me and one other SP who was my brother-in-law. And we also did pediatric end-of-life work as a couple who were married. So we would have to remember, okay, today, are we are we in-laws or are we, you know, even just the body language and the... Yeah. Well, that's funny. Who are we to each other? I appreciate the question. Their terms have been blurry, and I think there's more understanding now as the meaning of simulated covers more things than we might have called it before. That totally makes sense. And it's got me thinking a lot too of, Hmm. yeah, you know, so many things that I can always consider to standardize. It's actually, some of them are not, you know, they're more simulated for sure, because it is you get, you know, maybe a case that's just a paragraph and then yeah. you're just going in to, to talk about that and, you know, deal with something else, not about like a checklist, just be standardized. Otherwise, the situation is a failure. So it's really yeah. cool to learn and to, to think more about. So I know you've had so much experience, so I'm sure you have a lot to draw from, but I would love to hear if there's any funny or memorable, interesting stories that you've experienced Yeah, gosh, I think, I mean, just thinking now, you know, in my capacity that I've also been very fortunate to be able to write some cases, Mm. especially in the last maybe five years, just from a blank page, you know, conversation with a doctor in a hallway that turns into a persona. I can write it up and send it out to physicians who would be content experts to comment on and then see that come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, but realizing how many years it's been <laughs> since I started that, you know, kids today just are, are, are much younger than they were in the late nineties. And a case that I wrote for kind of breaking bad news, you know, practice with those difficult conversations involved. Uh, this is something that the doctor who just gave me the hallway conversation said, you know, well, what happens is you can play phone tag and you're trying to get the results from a specialist, but really they come to see you for something else and they just kind of say, hey, can you tell me from the electronic record? Mm. And in one of the debriefs, the SPs once said that the student had obviously never heard the phrase phone tag and had (laughs) interpreted their doctor had been playing a game on their phone. And that's (laughs) rather than getting this news to them. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm so old. (laughs) The phrase phone tag they haven't heard of. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. I mean, I know phone tag, but yeah, you know, I have to ask how long ago did this situation come up? It must have been 
Because I know when I wrote the case and when we shut down, spring of 2019. Okay, so (laughs) pre-pandemic, not too long ago, but also just, wow, okay. You know, like referring to actors or, you know, like teachers of mine. I remember when I was young saying, who's Gary Cooper? I don't know who that is. And I had a history teacher who just about fell off his chair that I'd never heard of him. But you don't realize that's going to be happening starting at age 20. You know, kids aren't going to have your favorite band. Yeah. Even 10 years later. I have to say that phone tag is still a thing that exists. I've played phone tag, quote unquote, with people trying to return phone calls and whatnot. But still, that's that's hilarious. Oh, thanks for well, sharing. thank you for being, you know, at least understanding. <laughs> but just one that comes from the opportunity also to just kind of envision a persona and take it from the page to the stage with rooms full of this person and seeing something meaningful happening. Like that's a very, it's not funny, but it, you know, that part is just really meaningful to me that I've been able to incorporate that part of myself and my interests. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds to me like it's a full production. You conceive of the idea or either it's with someone or, or yourself, you write it, then train it. And then you get to see, you know, a lot of different people portray it. And sometimes all at the same time, right? (laughs) And now, thank goodness, I'm not by myself. I was by myself at my current school for nine years, I think, eight years. And But now the wonderful Wendy, my colleague, can also be the trainer. So I can kind of work on other things while she's gathering questions Mm -hmm. that might not, you know, a case kind of standardized case might be 15 pages of details, but it's still not enough for the excellent questions that an SP is going to ask in training. I get to kind of edit the story, (laughs) this original story from the questions that she has and that in the first few trainings, things are going to come up. So that process to me of just, you know, character building, creation, and and then getting to see like the very first ripples of what that means, because the truly rewarding part of the work for me, and I hope any standardized or simulated patient appreciates this part, is the long-term impact of what you're doing for one learner who remembers a piece of feedback you gave or an awkward moment that they had to think about. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't realize I had a bias that men could have this problem as well as women, for example. Like that is a meaningful self-awareness and they're typing that right you know minutes after they saw the SP and then years from now patients will never meet will be better served because of that experience that we were able to provide in you know the 2000s 2022 even just to know that that impact is gonna be there absolutely thank you for for emphasizing that because it's so true you know you, you see a student and maybe you'll see them again at some point before they graduate, mm-hmm. maybe even a few times. However, once they graduate, we just hope that they've learned. I'm sure you all do too. And then you just, yeah, you hope that they're making the world a better place and have learned, taken good tidbits from cases over the years. Now, are there any cases or characters that you have in mind that you haven't written yet, but you're like, oh, this would be a good idea. I want to make this into a thing. 
Oh, specifically, I hadn't thought about that recently. There's just so many things we wish we could do. We had, we had a limitless budget and we had more than 10 exam rooms and, the, you know, the students could fit more into their calendars. I don't know about a brand new case. What is interesting is as you live through life and you have your own kind of medical experiences and you know more and more people live through the way doctors treated them, you hear sometimes really heartbreaking experiences of actual care provided, maybe from a doctor, maybe from, you know, a nurse or chaplain or somebody, even, you know, hospital security, all these populations are impacting a patient's experience. And I think just the chance to practice more, maybe the kind of pre-internship skills, like how do you do informed consent with a patient? Mm-hmm. That's something that ah, we kind of can't fit that in. We do a little bit, but really as residents, they're going to do that more and more. And when I, I had portrayed a patient with meningitis, mm. but that was the likeliest um, DX. And then I got meningitis in forties. Oh. Like I got this childhood disease at 41, I think. Oh my gosh. So part of me knew these symptoms I'm having are are sounding really familiar, but it wasn't exactly the same because that was a specific and repeatable version. And then here I am, yellow bile coming out in the morning from the pain, just the pain, the true, you know, 11 out of 10 headache, all these things. Oh no. And then it turned out it took them almost... 27 hours to do the spinal tap. And just to know from the inside, having pretended or imagined what it would be like to have a certain experience and a certain level of of pain and interactions, and then to live through what it really feels like and how compromised your your brain and well-being are when you're in so much pain. And what does a patient do in that case? And so in my real experience when they finally sent the surgeon in to do the the lumbar puncture he said well I'm here for your spinal tap and I started calling him Nigel from the movie Spinal Tap because (laughs) I love that character so much and I was delirious with pain and I, I was saying Nigel you know, he's, he was making me like push my back out, uh, facing, you know, my back facing him to get the, the spinal cord in position. And I just kind of said, you're not going to paralyze me, are you? And he said, no, you signed the consent form. Oh, oh that was really helpful. <laughs> like, Facts. Okay. So that was his informed consent process. Ooh. You know, So yeah. things like that, having lived through more and more and more. And talking to just SPs are also real patients for somebody and somewhere and unexpectedly or, you know, sometimes from trauma, sometimes just luck of the draw and genetics and all kinds of things. And the more stories you hear and the more real experiences you hear, my impulse to create new characters or persona as patients are those situations. It's more the how are you really treating this person imagining what their pain compromised state Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. or their just nearly faint compromised state of mind. I didn't really understand what I was trying to portray fully until I actually had it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. 
But I'm glad you're okay now. It was interesting. They think it was viral. You know, so I was in isolation. I wasn't, I was admitted to the hospital eventually, but I didn't have a fever. I am so rarely going to have a fever that they thought it can't be meningitis. So all these other tests and MRIs and all these other things before they finally said, well, we might as well just dig some fluid out and, you know, oh, it turns out you do have what do you know? This, this thing that we thought you you didn't. Mm, which every, is really a big deal. Yeah. And, and and the difference between standardizing a patient and then knowing that this patient might not be like the textbook. Like mm-hmm. the script I've learned on a person with meningitis is that they have to have a, a temperature. Have to mm. have but each individual is really a different patient. And we have the physical exam teaching associates going on right now, this big heavy block. And our trainer of trainers, um, I'll name him Ray, because Ray and Wendy are my everything. Ray's awesome. Um, you know, he was saying that some of our TAs, they have a JVP you can just see, you can just look at it and see it. There it is. And he said, on me, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find it. And just those kinds of things that if you're a doctor, to go through medical training in a low stakes, truly teaching, not assessment, no no checklist of this person got it the very first time I tried to explain what JVP was, they're learning also that the next time they have somebody different, they're not even going to have the same findings and they're healthy people. There's nothing wrong with their, their normal is that <laughs> and people's normal right. is different. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so important. So I have one final question for you. Should we change the name of our podcast to the simulator? (laughs) Oh, the pressure. I couldn't, I couldn't make that answer for you. (laughs) You know, it may come to a point, I would say, don't worry right now, but you might just do a slash simulated. Mm, Okay. Okay. Kind of lengthen the podcast. <laughs> I think that maybe three years from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary, thank you so so much for being our guest today. I loved talking to you, and I there's so many more things I could ask you, but we uh, we just want to say thank you for being here. Where can we find you, Mary Donovan? Well, you know, in terms of electronically, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me pretty soon out in my backyard. Um, I will not put the address in the show notes of your <laughs> Instagram and Facebook. So we have you at Instagram. It's at Mary F. Dons with a Z. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And we really just appreciate having you here. And thank you for all of the wonderful work you've been doing and with Wendy and Ray as well. Special shout outs to them. But I just have to say you all are such a supportive group of people and environment to work with and for that I know I am preaching to the choir and a lot of people who might be listening to this would agree that you all are just the bee's knees of standardized and simulated patient departments and areas. So everybody loved you all and I am one of those people. So thank you for everything. Thank you. That love is mutual for sure. And so much respect. It's it's harder work than anyone who hasn't done it would appreciate. You guys are rock stars every day. Thank so, you. That's very sweet of you. Amazing. Oh, well, on that note, (laughs) you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the Standardized Patients Podcast. Thanks to Randy Sharp for the use of our theme song, Mr. Garita. You can find their music at Artlist. Thank you to Catherine Bublack for the -the behind-the-scenes work, audio post-production, and cover art. That's our show. See you next time as we encounter more standards of standardized patient work. (laughs) 